0: Welcome to The Sea Word, The Conservator's Podcast. Today we're talking about military collections. I'm Jenny Mathiason, an objects conservator based in South Yorkshire.
1: And I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester.
0: Yeah, and today we've got a special guest host. Vicky, would you like to introduce yourself?
2: (laughs) My name's Vicky Singleton. I'm the conservation manager at the National Army Museum.
0: Very snazzy. Hello,
2: Welcome thanks for having me
0: so i can't think of a better person to talk to about military stuff no um yeah so i was just gonna start us off with a bit of like what our experiences are on the table should i go first you should go first okay i'll go first i'm gonna start with i have no military background and this i feel is something that might come up (laughs) because (laughs) right so people who don't know I was born in Sweden. Now Sweden has had military conscription, pretty much mandatory for males since nineteen oh one, with some really? gaps here and I there. I didn't know that. Yeah, with some gaps here and there. But we didn't have any like direct involvement with World War One or two because we were supposedly neutral. And that tends to mean that people I mean, I I don't have that unique connection with the world wars because I can't say my grandfather fought in that and like my great granddad did that thing. Like I can't say those Mm -hmm. things, which means I don't have an automatic buy-in in a lot of the military history in Britain, which makes that a surprisingly difficult subject sometimes. That being said, I should probably point out that Sweden isn't devoid of military history. We have something like 40 plus, 40 to 50 military museums in Sweden.
1: But that sounds like a lot.
0: And we do have a lot of military history. That being said, I don't personally feel particularly connected to it. But I have volunteered at regimental museums and I work at one now. So I do actually uh, work quite a bit with military collections, which is something that surprises me (laughs) as much as anyone. Because I felt that that was kind of being thrown in at the deep end because basically where I work now, it's a museum that has been merged with a regimental museum. Mm-hmm. And that means that we are essentially two museums. Sort of operating as one. But having two names. It's a little bit complicated. And that means that part of my collection. Is also a military collection. And I did not know what I was getting into. <laughs> having never held a gun. Etc. That sort of thing. Uh, which is something that we talked about in the Danger Danger episode. Yeah. <laughs> where we talked uh, to uh, lead draw and armories. About uh, guns and firearms. And all that stuff. right? So. It's been a steep learning curve. Uh-huh. An enjoyable one. Uh-huh. But a bit intense. Mm.
1: Anyone else? <laughs> um, well, I I suppose I'm the I feel like I'm often in this in this podcast, the the person who either disagrees or doesn't know anything and <laughs> asking loads of stupid questions. <laughs> so I um I sort of just actively don't like military collections. But okay, okay. I think okay. that is because I have I'm sort of I just have a sort of political impatience with war and attitudes to war. And I don't think that really links up with how I feel about um memorials or you know the the actual people or how or how military collections fit into social history because but it's complicated it's yeah it's kind of complicated i I know that it that wars have been in this country have been very have been very important to um social history and i know that military collections are just another form of social history but i sort of you know It's the gun thing. I just go, Oh, whatever kind of thing. I just I just have no I just have no patience with it. And that's I mean thank God I've never had to, I've never been uh, presented with a military collection because I'd have to really change my views on that. <laughs> um, Fair enough. But yeah, so I'm looking forward in this episode, I think, to talking to Vicky about what it's like working with a military collection and also different attitudes to military collections that we, we can We're going to take you on a ride. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm interested to have my horizons broadened um, because I don't think being just sort of disregarding of it a whole type of object collection is
0: healthy at all <laughs>
1: that's that's also fair
0: that's also fair all right Ricky.
2: so I had I volunteered at museums that certainly had military collections in them mm. previously but starting my job at the National Army Museum was the first time I'd worked yeah it was the first military museum I'd worked at anyways and I felt the same as you Jenny like I don't have a military background I don't have you know I haven't studied studied military history I don't so yeah I, I was a little bit concerned when I started the job because I was I was a bit naive and I was like oh gosh like I worked in a natural history museum before yeah, and I, yeah. No. But I was like oh my goodness I'm going to be working you know going from working with taxidermy and skeletons which I feel very comfortable with to working with swords and firearms and medals and I won't, won't like you know I'm, I'm not going to know anything and I you know I was quite nervous but I was also quite naive because the collection is so diverse and there's so many transferable materials and objects between the different collections types that you kind of, yeah, you have to think about more the materials rather than the actual kind of like the collection. But yeah, I was definitely slightly nervous when I started and like you, like I'd never heard, held a firearm before yeah. and I had to, every, every year that I'm working at now, I, I learn more and I, you know, I have a better understanding of these objects and that's that's a really nice, a really nice feeling. But yeah, so my, my main experience of working with military museums, to summarise, is at the National Army Museum.
0: I, th- yeah. I think you're really onto something there because I, I was initially terrified, but as soon as you start breaking something down into, oh, okay, it's just these materials and this particular configuration, then it starts feeling a little bit less intimidating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and I think yeah. any any conservator who goes into a new place of work actually has that reaction. If it's a collection they're not like super intimately familiar with. And I mean, you certainly get with social history all the time. Cause social history uh-huh. is so vastly different yeah. at each place you go to. So actually, it's a very natural reaction for us all to be a little bit nervous and uh, yeah then just kind of conquering those fears by starting to look I at think, hang on i i know what to do with metal this is just metal uh-huh. in a tube
1: that is
0: meant to fire something but it's fine and i made sure it's safe and everything's fine and yeah it's just yeah, about thinking that's those things I through
1: about, uh, industrial collections actually when i started working with when i started yeah. my previous place started working with industrial collections because obviously it's it's moving parts it does a thing it's made out of these things and these are the safety concerns Yeah, exactly. That's that's kind of that's the that's your.
0: I thought we'd have a quick chat about the different types of military museums that you find in the UK because there's a bewildering array. Uh And as someone who is not intimately familiar with military structure,
1: it gets worse. because we've got like right so first of all god does it bring military structure into it as well well yeah because okay okay. so we've got Um, i'm cracking my fingers i'm getting my brain in good
0: (laughs) so aside from obviously museums who just happen to have a bit of military social history just Uh kind of randomly social history
1: yeah we've got
0: service branch specific museums so that's things like the RAF and uh, the navy okay. and you know then you get in very broadly kind of specific mm-hmm. uh we've got the big nationals because there tend to be ones that are just called the national museum of blank for example mm-hmm. and then we've got ships can be museums so they're floating museums uh, okay. um, yeah, okay. um whatever's that's, attached that's great to that and etc and then obviously we've already strayed into regimental museums mm-hmm. which tends to obviously be for a specific regiment which means there are loads of those because there are loads of little regiments and they're not all active ones they are sometimes ones that have come out of active service that don't exist anymore but you know people served in them so people have a connection to them mm-hmm. and it's it's all god it, there's so many layers
1: there are so many times I actually hadn't thought of it like that but when you when you start with well obviously the RAF like oh right okay yeah yeah, yeah. yeah I can I can, get, yeah, I can yeah, wrap exactly. my head around that <laughs> but then I think this probably stems from me not
0: having an appreciation of how incredibly many parts there are that there is to say just the armed forces mm-hmm. of Britain because there's so much going on and i i just don't have a genuine kind of overview of of how many different branches and regiments and all that stuff that makes up the armed forces and each one can have a museum and often does Mm -hmm. have a museum Mm -hmm. and they can be huge and they can be tiny and they can be part of another museum and it's it's just it's an amazing array
1: really So is the structure of the armed forces something that you've had to make yourself aware of as well as the the object types?
2: It's something that I'm just constantly learning about, to be honest. And and if I have questions, I'll ask curators about Uh um, the structure. It's not something I'm intimately familiar with by any means. And I'm constantly having to ask questions about.
0: Because there is a lot to take in.
2: Uh Um, I think I'm getting that now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And then we almost train to the kind of territory of jargon,
2: Mm -hmm. which... Oh, so many acronyms. oh god, yeah so
0: many acronyms. So many. There are a lot of different ranks depending on which branch you served in and all that stuff. And obviously changes over history as well mm-hmm. to some degree. So I feel like I could really do with a dummy's guide the entire <laughs> the entire British military system. That would be great. But I haven't found that yet. So if anyone knows of anything, that's a really good overview of like from say just the 1600s to now that'd be <laughs> great <laughs> and if that doesn't exist please write one <laughs> just please i need it
2: like the actual objects as well themselves have very particular names
0: for every do. part
1: of
2: them
0: i mean just the different bits of a sword
1: <laughs> the, i was yeah i was just thinking of swords actually i, I just and then different week, different kinds of swords are called different well, things. i mean yeah i'm so right what is a saber <laughs> Why is it different to a sword? I don't want this to be like, you know, question time or anything. But um, (laughs) I just did a condition report for uh, two swords that we were referring to as sabers. Then we saw that actually they were accessioned as swords. And we were like, where did the word sabre come from? Where where did we drag that one from? I've got no idea. And then I looked it up online and they were called both in different situations. Oh, and sometimes you just just, get things that are simultaneously called two things. Yeah, I don't
0: get it. It's mind boggling. And sometimes I just have to rely on the wisdom of other people around me who can tell me. I do feel slightly like people do tend to get quite annoyed at me for not knowing these things. Oh, really? Yes. Yes. But, and there's also an assumption, I feel, because we're a military museum, there's a certain assumption of knowledge, uh, which we're trying to get out of uh, in terms of how we write our interpretation mm. and stuff. Because there's kind of an assumption that if you go here, that means that you were probably part of this regiment or you're related to someone who was. And suddenly that becomes a thing. So we're going to talk to you in this very specific way where we're not going to explain what a theatre of war is. And we're not going to explain what this particular bit of equipment actually does because it's so obvious to us and it must be obvious to (laughs) you. Oh, I see. And then you start putting up a barrier where people go into your museum and they feel stupid and they feel like they're not learning Mm. anything. And this can translate to staff. Hello. (laughs) Uh, Because there's a lot of this feeling like, well, why are you even touching this if you don't know what it's called? Well, kind of because it's my job. Mm -hmm. And also because you guys could share. (laughs) You could share that knowledge Mm. with me. But jargon is something that's almost kind of closely guarded because it's so part of military kind of uh, the way of speaking, the way of communicating. And it is supposed to be very obvious because you're supposed to be in the know-how. But that's not how perhaps a generic museum visitor might see it, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. So I think... It's a journey that many military museums that I've been to are on to kind of take things from a very jargony and kind of very expertise driven kind of way of speaking to making it more accessible and making people maybe bringing people into a new knowledge, Mm. uh, which I find really interesting, actually. And it's really heartening to see because it does mean that someone like me can rock up to a military museum Mm -hmm. and feel like I'm here to learn something today. I'm not here to go away feeling like there's no point because I didn't know what a theatre of war was. (laughs) (laughs) So I I lost the entire context of the entire museum and then I left.
1: (laughs) Is that what you found in your museum, Vicky? My museum went through a big redevelopment. It reopened in
2: 2017 and one of the aims of that revampment was making the displays more accessible Mm -hmm. for an audience and so i think we've kind of like you know we've had a massive project to try and um, do that already and sort of heading in that direction and now there's like you know it's kind of finding a balance between yes satisfying those visitors who know what they're talking about and really Mm -hmm. then but then yeah making it accessible to the wider audience as well and that's a really difficult balance to to um it to find,
0: it, it, is, it is a very difficult balance. And I always try to assure people when I do make this argument that maybe we could try to explain this in a different way, that I'm not saying, like, stop using the word. I'm just trying to say, maybe explain it first.
1: Or maybe maybe even yeah. have a glossary
0: or something that I can pick so up. So
1: I'm actually, I'm really interested now, actually, from previous, from a recent experience in working with veterans. So I, though I have said, oh, I'm not interested in military collections. One of the most wonderful projects I've had to do, actually, possibly in my whole career, is mount four now military flags um, standards that are owned by veterans in Wrexham museums. And they actually visited and saw the the objects and it was just saw the objects in situ being treated with the respect of museum objects. And it was a surprisingly emotional experience oh, wow. um, all around. And they, they, bought their, they were in uniform. They bought their fourth standard because it was three at the time and then the fourth standard that was in use at the time for photography and stuff. Um, and they were talking about all of their previous, all the previous people that they were in service with. And it was just, it was, I was amazed at how sort of, emotionally charged everything was and it that was that was the thing that brought it brought the the social history aspect of it home to me um, and I was wondering Vicky is there a sort of program of events for veterans in your museum?
2: Yeah so we're based next to the Chelsea Royal Hospital and so we've got really good links with the you know the veteran community there and um, we have various events that go on throughout the year and With regimental museums as well, you know, you do get a lot of veterans in those museums. I personally will provide advice for individuals that will get in contact with you with how they would like to. Like it's often questions about storage, storing their own kind of personal items or potentially they might be interested in how they would proceed if they wanted to get something conserved um also talking to regimental museums about options they have going forward with storage and conservation yeah but we definitely the museum has a lot of links with those communities um mm-hmm. just like not just veterans either like people who are still in the army and regiments mm-hmm. um you know current regiments and and soldiers there's a lot of links between the two which is a, a positive cuz you can you know draw stories from their experiences
0: and uh, yeah yeah it makes me think that so yours is obviously a very much a kind of a, a living museum and that it collects now as well like things mm-hmm. from current soldiers as well um as for yep. we as a, a kind of a regimental museum we mostly collect things from you know there's still stories of people's fathers and grandfathers Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing and obviously we've still got these people coming in and sharing their stories with us and that's fantastic so we do get donations still but i think the main way that people actually engage with our collection is actually not so much the objects Mm -hmm. although we do get plenty of requests for people to see objects donated by their family members and stuff like that but actually, we get a lot of interaction with our archives because our, the uh, borough's archive is also a regimental archive and okay. sits on site with us, mm-hmm. which is really valuable. And people come in all the time doing family research, trying to figure out you know, where their, you know, grandfather or great grandfather went in the wars and what they did and like all of these pieces of paper that are so important to them as a person. And I, yeah, it's, it's an astonishing amount of people coming in and sharing stories Mm -hmm. and discovering more about themselves or their families, just through kind of research on an archival basis, which is really nice.
2: Yeah, we have the same, we've got a, um, like a a the Templar Study Centre, which, um, is a beyond site like, study and research for access to archives and it yeah it's the same like lots of interest and in visitors coming in and in working in the reading room kind of like looking up their past or their family's past or you know it's yeah, yeah. It's, it's a really positive positive connection with that community
0: yeah it's wonderful oh, shall we enter into the murky waters of ethics perhaps oh don't don't do that face at me <laughs> hey i love ethics i'm rolling up my sleeves <laughs> excellent well how about the ethics of say collecting i mean i think military museums they kind of have a duty to collect all these stories and things i feel because otherwise they are lost but then is that not a duty of every single museum ever collect stories unless they are lost
1: i think that's the duty of every every museum i suppose i i wonder how much sort of this is very emotionally charged yeah i'm guessing yes there's no easy
0: no of course i mean and i think there's a There's a unique kind of level of emotional investment in military museums, which you don't necessarily see everywhere else. Mm -hmm. Like people are passionate in in all museums. They are. But maybe the level of emotional investment almost from the public might be quite significantly larger in a military museum, uh, depending on if it's, you know, within living memory, etc. If it's like a, a, a current collecting. It can get very emotional to kind of because military collections challenge people. They do. And I think that's actually a good thing. It stimulates conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh it can make people think about sacrifices of the past. It can make people question things now. Mm-hmm. Um and I I think that's really valuable. And it's something that I love asking people in job interviews. What would you do if a, if a museum visitor was very upset by the fact that we're displaying weapons?
1: Yes, that is an, That's a really interesting question. Actually, I'd, I want to hear from both of you. Have you had the situation where you've, you've had a visitor come up to you, or you've had you know an email saying we've had a complaint about how this is displayed? Someone thinks it's not it's not sensitive.
0: No, you have not. But then, bearing in mind, and I, I'm going to be slightly presumptuous and say that the same is probably true for Vicky's Museum. We advertise yeah. what we are. You have uh, okay. to choose to go in, and you kind of know what you're buying into. It's like nobody would go into their museum of human remains and then be sad that they saw human remains, right? Would you go into a military museum and then be upset that you have seen a weapon? I feel like you you would be hard pushed to mm-hmm. make that argument mm-hmm. that you were upset by it. That being said, I'm sure it can something can have been done insensitively, sure, but I guess because the buy-in is there, you are entering a military museum, mm-hmm. then I think there's a certain level of maybe preparation in terms of the visitor's mind that, okay, I'm going into a military museum. This is what I expect. No, it's my answer. Okay. Yeah, so far anyway. <laughs> but I love asking people the question.
2: No, yeah, no, my answer is the same. I haven't had any visitors express that to me. I'd be interested to talk to our visitor experience staff to see if they have, but I kind of I agree with Jenny. You know, people are coming in knowing what they're looking at, and also,
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, you know, I'm, I strongly believe that everything in the museum is displayed very sensitively and kind mm-hmm. of like you know, taking um yeah, isn't displayed inappropriately at all. So, you know, I hope nobody would ever be offended by anything they've come in to look at. So,
0: yeah, so uh, I think that that might be where the balance is there. Oh, and I, yeah of course so we're, we're talking about displaying things and i'm completely okay with displaying things including weapons that have been used perfectly fine with that mm-hmm. if anything i think it adds authenticity to display clothing that has clearly been torn or you know like i feel like it's completely okay to display what is real i would feel a lot, le- a, lot a lot less comfortable if we were displaying things that weren't real if you see what i mean
1: mm-hmm like, Replicas and...
0: Yeah, I, I feel like... yeah, Unless there's a certain level of reenactment, which I might be able to come... Which I'm going to talk more about later. I feel like what you display has to be genuine. And that's the rule. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it's completely okay to display, like we have, a trench helmet that has clearly had a hole in it.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, that's... so
0: Like someone ended their days with that on it.
1: How do you manage question to both of you again how do you manage reactions to that because i feel as though the reaction that adults and museums probably want to uh, encourage in that is oh goodness how sort of poignant or oh is that real or oh is that real yes but but the the sort of maybe the 12 uh, year old boy reaction Apologies for being sexist. Maybe twelve old. I mean, Might I do Oh my if god, that that's was so cool. Yeah, it would be. Oh, awesome! That's amazing. Oh, look, somebody's brains exploded out of that hole. But like, yeah. how do? How is? The, how that's do you a encourage a thoughtful reaction?
0: You ultimately can't. You can't. I can't. Like all you can do is frame <laughs> things. But ultimately, if someone wants to take away from that, that's so cool that I saw a helmet mm. where someone's brains have been blown out. Then <laughs> fine. But, you know, then that is still a reaction and that might still be a memory that they have. Mm That might still be a memory that makes them, I don't know, that impacts them in some way later in life. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not up to me to say what's a good reaction from a a museum exhibition, you know, like.
2: It's usually, um, it'll be some kind of emotional reaction, won't it? Whether it's, you know, somebody's sad about what they're looking at or they're angry about what they're looking at. Or, you know, it makes them go away and think about it for weeks. They might never think about it again, but you know you can't control that emotion that somebody's going to feel when they they see
1: that object
0: yeah and it, it can go either way life. and it's mm-hmm. it's perfectly all right it's much more worrying to me if people come out completely unfazed
1: <laughs> that's true. it's
0: like then you've done something wrong haven't you <laughs> so, oh it's just a bunch of stuff junk <laughs> no that's that that would be a terrible outcome <laughs> that's true so yeah yeah but yeah and in terms of conserving these things i, I guess you know we have to think about what it is that we're trying to conserve not that this has ever happened to me but if there was a blood stain on something i wouldn't clean it off like that is part of the object no, history well, that you know like
1: that was going to be my question how much do we clean stuff what what would your what would your reactions both be
2: it's very difficult and i think it will it, it it's just such a, a on the fence answer but um it depends on the object you know yeah because don't want anything to be contributing to further deterioration of the Mm -hmm. object so say you've got a uniform that has sweat stains on it for instance and you might you know a a justification for trying to wash the sweat out is because it's acidic and might contribute to the fabric deteriorating but then you'd still you'd still have the you might still have the coloration from the sweat but you won't have the sweat there anymore and i don't i don't know what the answer is it's one of those questions where it's like you know they kind of might blow my mind a little bit but um yeah, you kind of have to think about the object and its preservation and what's best for that, as well as mm. trying to serve the story and what it's telling. And it's mm-hmm. a, again it's a difficult balance, um, and I think it is like a case by case judgment on each object and how you how you proceed with it. I, I think, anyways. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how you.
0: <laughs> no, it, I, I I think that's true because I mean right. So one of the first things that I had to treat when I started this job uh, was that they'd put a uh, they'd put a uh, machine gun. On my lab table and said well we need this cleaned up for display
1: <laughs> <laughs> Bam. <laughs> also
0: we didn't have any way of mounting it so i had to create this very sturdy odd thick plaster so like kind of mounting point for it mm. so it would look so we would be at the right angle mm-hmm. and look vaguely right and stuff like that and i mean i approached that very differently to say some barbed wire from the trenches mm. that I, I, I had recently because ultimately, I wouldn't really want to clean that. It's got mud on it that's, you know, it's it's from there.
1: Mm. Wow, what an amazing it's, object.
0: But it was also falling apart <sighs> because it was really, really rusty. And you may yeah. or may not agree uh-huh. with what I did, but I ended up consolidating all the mud on it and kept it as one ol- uh, object because it needed consolidation. And I just decided the mud is an important part of yeah. the object.
1: Yeah, it is. that's probably what it I'd have now. done.
0: Yeah. So I, you may or may not agree with that, but it's what I did because I felt that that was so in intrinsic mm, to mm-hmm. why it was even an interesting piece of barbed wire if you see what i mean because <laughs> <laughs> it is it's, it is an interesting piece of barbed wire so yeah so yeah i think it's really really dependent on context like perhaps no i, I wouldn't say more than anywhere else because ultimately all of our collections are important but you know
2: yeah it depends are used aren't they like you know yeah 9 times out of 10 they've they've had a you know quite a
0: a hard life
2: yeah, you kind of have to respect that and make mm. a judgment mm-hmm. on that. It's, yeah, it's really difficult.
0: Very yeah, difficult. and it's also one of these things. of Obviously, these things are often made to last. It was built to be dragged around, to yeah. be chucked around and obviously <laughs> we we can take this you know kind of full circle to well airplanes and tanks and you know like really really huge objects
1: can we talk about that can we talk yeah, about uh, the practicalities and I'll I'll look at both of you but I'm really interested what do you have to deal with what what firstly what do you what space do you have to work with so i i've got
2: quite a nice lab space it, it's quite big there's reasonably good access to it with big double doors and it's just me in there as well a lot of the time uh. so yeah. So, so yeah. So it's a quite. It's a decent space to work in. The stores we have are enormous. So we've got quite a vast collection of everything from vehicles to uniforms to paintings to edged weapons to archive material to medal. You know, like it's mm-hmm. it's such a collection that. Um, And some of those objects you can't, they wouldn't necessarily work in the lab space because they're too big or, you know, vehicles will kind of like stay where they are.
1: (laughs) So it sounds like quite a lot of big bits of metal, but I'm interested in clothing, uniform, flags, banners. What do you have in the way of that and how do you work with, say, the really large scale textile?
2: Yeah, so we have a collection of about 80,000 uniforms. Oh my god!
1: What? (laughs) 80,000?
2: Yeah. Jesus. Um, it's quite an amazing storage facility in terms of what it holds because yeah mm. 80,000 is huge wow. um, they're, they're stored in a combination of um, hanging in garment bags with padded hangers and uh, like heavier or more unstable objects are in uh, kind of coffin boxes packed nicely Our large textiles we're really lucky actually because when they got the stores fitted they got a number of kind of bespoke rollers like huge rollers in the in the racks and so we have all these like we have a lovely space for rolling textiles basically mm. and we also have lots of enormous drawers like mm-hmm. flaps drawers which can um, accommodate quite big colors and flags as well so yeah. the composition of those two really it, it kind of covers our covers our bases which is quite nice and then we have a number we have like hundreds of smaller drawers as well which will accommodate smaller textiles um so yeah we're, we're like it's a it's a really really nice storage facility in terms of our, our, our flat textiles
1: it sounds like you have a sort of pipe dream storage <laughs> facility <laughs> well, for, to be honest. for some of us yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> i mean every storage facility like no museum storage mm, facility is no. perfect but yeah we definitely- <laughs> We have a really nice big space and we do have really like beautiful storage.
0: You know you know what that vaguely reminds me of. Speaking of storage spaces, mm-hmm. I remember going as part of uni at some point. I went to the Fleet Air Arm Museum, which oh, is amazing. Right it's wicked and their storage facility where is, is that?
1: beautiful uh
0: vicky help me out do you remember where it is you will yeah
1: oh is it south southwest yeah yeah it That's
0: is right. yeah. Okay. yeah yeah okay. yeah it's quite far away oh, well worth a visit though you have to have a car to get to it uh well which is one of those things mm-hmm. which is probably why i'll never see it again but oh. <laughs> it was amazing but yeah it's an amazing facility and they've got this huge building where they just keep all of these amazing pieces of vehicle Uh, and obviously all the smaller stuff as well but it being the fleet air arm museum Mm. they have a ton of planes right yeah so many planes (laughs) Um, and i remember being mesmerized a by the storage facilities and b by the kind of restoration work they were undertaking on these planes right because it was very much the kind of place where you needed like engineers to be kind of trained in some conservation and then right yeah uh, you you needed to work as a team because this you know planes are huge Mm -hmm. Uh, and then they were trying to do this thing where some of the planes they were trying to strip back the kind of pristine paint that for a long time had been the kind of display standard because people sometimes well the theory used to be that people go to see a plane looking as if it was new and about to uh, take off into oh, battle oh, um, oh. and actually they thought that they would experiment with stripping back that paint and revealing the original paint layers so you could see where it was patched, so you could see mm-hmm. where it was scarred by bullets. Where well, you, that sounds so you like could, the interesting stuff to me. Yeah, so you could really see what a hard life the plane had had. And I, I absolutely loved that project. It was mm. absolutely amazing to see. And like the guy who was heading it was talking to us. And it was fantastic. Uh, that, that place is well worth a visit, by the way, if if anyone's keen on planes, because that was so cool. <laughs> also i bought the best teddy bear ever in their shop <laughs> <laughs> they
2: do it um for the planes on display so it means visitors can see like the work going on these kind of um they call it paint archaeology i think yeah
0: oh they? cool like, yeah it's so cool
2: yeah it's very very cool
0: so uh that's i love that kind of thing right mm. you just kind of yeah just peeling back the paint layers and it's so amazing and you can see how dented and dinged and messed up it is because it was in use that's so much more of a testament to the history of the object as opposed to this is what it would have looked like when it was all pristine and when it would have taken off for the first this time is what it's made looked like and in the catalog. Yeah. yeah it is a bit like <laughs> this is what it looked like in the catalogue which you know i feel like has more well, to me anyway as a as a punter that has less value than seeing it in I feel its like it's kind of been
1: done we've sort of we've done the sort of early 90s museum where everything is shiny and
0: and also that's kind of what a reconstructed model is yeah, for yeah yeah
1: exactly I kind yeah. of
0: feel like that fills that niche better but yeah that that was a fantastic experience to go so do go if you like planes by the way
1: so what do we how do we feel about funding and the funding that's made Ooh. available for military collections because I feel that's as a though great question there's if you're talking about just, I say just because that's how some people see it, just social history collections. Yeah. I feel like there's there's a lot of struggling social history collections around. Do you get the impression, ladies around the table, that big bucks are more available to large military collections because of the interest in large of, of military collections? I see what you're trying to say, but I think no,
0: not in Britain, at least. Right. Um, Right. So something I was unaware of for for a long time was that the Ministry of Defense actually helped fund regimental museums and military collections for a long Mm -hmm. time. And that has since ceased, so it no longer gets funding from the MOD. You know, there are cuts everywhere. Mm. And that was just one of those things, right? So it went. Uh, Which means actually military museums tend to be struggling now. Oh, um, right. Probably more than we're aware Mm -hmm. and that kind of means that alternative funding is really important you can get some grants that are specifically for military museums depending on what kind of museum you are and they are done through the amot that's what they're called for short so there are some grants out there for military museums but i think i think then ultimately a lot of it is becoming a fundraising game like with everything else where it's becoming a thing oh well you know (laughs) please put a couple of pennies in the pot on your way Mm. out and maybe think of us as a legacy like maybe leave us money in your will that sort of Mm -hmm. thing Maybe if you feel like this is where your grandfather's stuff is, you can help us look after it by giving us money now, that sort of thing, right? So I think more and more it's leaning towards that. I don't necessarily know all that much about the funding models out there, but it used to get funding from the MOD and they don't anymore. anymore. So that's kind of where that's at really. Much like any type of museum, also struggling. So,
1: yeah. What do you see in the way of donations from veterans, I suppose, and veterans' families um, because there are so many people who have been involved in is, regiments, military, Is that in terms of what kind of objects we see donated? Yeah, kind of objects you see and kind of collections you see. So I imagine that much in the same way as in loads of other collections, you get, you know, so-and-so collected this sort of thing, or so-and-so was passionate about this because of an involvement, collected it, and then following so-and-so's, death their family has said museum look at this would you like it and i imagine that because military collections are such a specific type of collection mm-hmm. that that will happen quite a lot do you see that happen do you think so
0: we do get a lot of donations for the military collection and they are a mix of so-and-so has passed away mm-hmm. and we as a family thought this might be the best thing mm-hmm. and sometimes it's just older persons coming in saying mm-hmm. look i was a part of this and I still remember this and I would like you to have Mm, my things mm -hmm. because my children aren't actually interested yeah and I'm sure they would just put in a charity bag Mm -hmm. by mistake Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing so you kind of get both of those Mm -hmm. and then it tends to be a mixture of archival materials that's photographs and letters and train passes you know all sorts of Mm. great ephemera essentially people's uniforms we get a lot of uniforms we get a lot of medals Less often we might get a weapon of some sort, mm-hmm. but yeah, I think it's mostly the it's mostly the little bits of paper, yeah, and the medals, the, the bits medals and pieces that's so easier to keep. Yeah, okay. yeah,
1: exactly. What do you find?
2: Yeah, um, much the same really in terms of donations. We we have a collections development group. We'll discuss it and work out if it fits in with our collections development. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we'll go forward from there. But very similar to Jenny, a lot of archival material, a lot of photographs, uniforms, medals. We do acquire artwork as well, oil paintings. Mm-hmm.
1: To, you know. So how do you say no? So I'm the direction I'm coming from. I suppose is the fact that every that this this sort of collection, this sort of object, is very very emotionally charged. And I I'm imagine that a family decision to say donate grandfather's hat or yeah. husband's hat would be a very, very difficult thing to do. And then tactfully saying no, kindly saying no, how is that managed? So, okay, so much like
0: uh, Vicky was saying, we also have uh, what we call an acquisition and disposal panel, which discusses anything that is offered to us to become part of the collection. And uh, whilst we often say yes when it comes to the military collections, there might occasionally be reason for us to say no. But then it tends to be because it's it might be that we've already got got many of this exact Mm -hmm. thing uh if it's a very common type of uniform and it's not in particularly good nick then it would be so much effort to try to look after that and then but then you know you can't turn around to a family and go it's too much effort looking after your (laughs) thing but then it might in fact be the sensitive thing to say is actually we already have six Identical uniforms, and we just can't take on a Mm, seventh. mm. But then we might actually make a recommendation that these people might want it instead. If you definitely Mm -hmm. don't want it, so we always try to facilitate that someone else can might be interested. So at at no point are we turning anyone away in a kind of a harsh no, never kind of way. (laughs) It's always with with a reason or with a suggestion for where to go next. And that where to go next can can be, actually, you might need to look at a different regimental museum because actually they weren't actually part of this, mm-hmm. this one. It just looked More like relevant. they were yeah. uh, or like that might have been misread or just because they lived in this geographical area doesn't mean that they served in this regiment. In mm-hmm. actual fact, mm-hmm. in the document, it says this, so we'll go here instead. We always try to facilitate them going away feeling like they've been valued, their object has been looked mm-hmm. at. And like there is somewhere to go rather mm-hmm. than go home and put in a charity bag because that's nobody wants to hear that. No. So, yeah. But often we do take the things to come in because they form a unique part of the story. Mm-hmm. Because I guess we try to make sure that we gather the story that goes with it. So if possible, it's not just a medal. It's a medal that was received for this reason yes. by this person on this date because of this story. And then it was actually because his mate did that thing. Mm, and, then yeah. I, and and the more story you can get with a, a military object, the better, and it's true for any object. The better it is, the more likely it is to be accepted. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's all of those things. But we try not to turn people away in a, without giving them some guidance for what they can do.
2: Oh, yeah, no, Jenny, you just summed it up exactly as it is at- Nam as well we yeah we'll there'll always be a um yeah like often the object might not be suitable for our collection but it will be suitable with a regimental museum or a different national yeah. Um, and yeah so we'd kind of like give feedback on that.
0: So I just wanted to bring in an example of something I saw done elsewhere really uh, because uh, I've, I've gushed about Fleet Air Arm uh, Museum and stuff like mm-hmm. that so I thought I'd gush a bit about something I saw on the other side of the planet which was actually two places in New Zealand where I was early this year one was at Te Papa and it was the Gallipoli exhibition oh wow which is immense so again I'm gonna cite my cultural background of not being particularly invested in any of these conflicts uh-huh. means that if you make me care you have mm. done one hell of a job <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) and i came out of there crying oh i mean that was immense so the gallipoli exhibition uh which is running until april next year so if you're ever on that side of the planet or if you're a listener there go and see it so it's this strange mixture of regular museum objects presented in a fantastic way and you know all the fancy displays that you could possibly want Mm -hmm. it's very well done mixed with giant oversized models sculptures of men and actually women in the trenches very much in the midst of battle they're made by it's a peter jackson studio i want to say that you know like so people oh, who do right. movie props yeah yeah and yeah. like amazing sculptures so they are they're, they're human beings but they are so much larger than you are so you can see every pore on their face and oh like my God. and they are so well made they are immense. So you're standing next. Each soldier or nurse or whatever it is that's going on in front of you, each diorama uh, has a dedicated room. So you go from a bit of exhibition into a, into a room with a, a diorama. And there's just this enormous person in front of you. And they look so lifelike, like they're about to reach out and touch you. And they are so emotional. Because there's people, you know, at, at their breaking points, in the midst of battle or crying because they've received a letter. I they are amazingly emotional and they have some voice acting with them and stuff. So it's almost a cinematic kind of Mm -hmm. experience. And there are benches so you can just sit down and hang out with them because they feel like real people. They're based on real people. They've got the photos and stuff of all the people they are based on. So in some ways they are real and you can sit down and just kind of sit there and contemplate with them for as long as you need. They recommend at least an hour in this exhibition. I think we spent three. Oh, wow. Well. <laughs> Which is, I think, a record for me in any exhibition. So it's just kind of museum bit, giant diorama, museum bit, giant diorama. But the, the level of emotional investment they manage to get out of you with, with these amazing lifelike, but bigger than life people is... Immense, and I've never seen anything like it. And I guess I this is taking immersive kind of exhibitions to a whole new level. Mm -hmm. And I'd I'd never seen it so well done. And they made me care about a conflict where I had no ancestors. This has nothing to do with me, Mm. but it was immense, and I felt so strongly about these people. That's it. I don't know. I felt like I came away emotionally scarred, which is beautiful. (laughs) And similarly, they did a really great thing uh, somewhere called the Omaka Heritage Aviation Center, where they had a similar approach. And actually part of the same studio had done some of these things where they'd reconstructed. Again, they mixed traditional museum style things with reconstructions. So they had planes with people climbing in or out of them, Mm -hmm. you know, so but these were life size as opposed to larger than life uh, but still very well made people working on them people being shot down people being dragged out because they were injured they made it come to life in a way that i've never seen before and again they had the photos and the the stuff where it said like this is based on this photo and you can see that it's the same people Mm -hmm. that they've just made three-dimensional right there in front of you and it became so emotional and because they brought in soundscapes and all this stuff, it made it real in a way that history is very difficult to make when you just look in a case with a uniform and a letter. Because whilst that can be emotional in and of itself, it can sometimes be difficult to kind of get that across if you don't have an immediate connection with the person in the case. So I just thought these were fantastic examples of immersive and very kind of modern Mm -hmm. uh, exhibitions obviously they must have cost the earth (laughs) to make Uh, i cannot imagine and also they had the space to kind of sprawl out and do that Mm. which most places won't but it was amazing to see and it was really cool and i haven't seen it done anywhere else and i just wanted to bring it up as a kind of very immersive experience that was very well made So today we're talking about military collections and I thought this would be a great opportunity to talk to someone who does something a little bit different from what we might be used to. Ian, would you like to introduce yourself and your channel and your website?
3: Sure. Uh, My name is Ian McCollum and I run, well, it started as just a website and then turned into primarily a video channel called Forgotten Weapons. And the whole idea was to archive information about mostly experimental and prototype firearms, the idea started about eight years ago when I had some mutual friends who had come up with some really relevant and interesting uh, documentation on some World War One pattern firearms, and they passed yeah. away, and their family yeah. didn't recognize the significance of what they had dug out of the French archives or dug out of the garbage when a lot of the stuff was being thrown away by factories, yeah. and they just threw it away themselves. And it's information that probably will never come back to light. I don't think we'll ever find another copy of it, yeah. and I figured you know, it's it's too bad no one's doing anything to preserve this. So I started a website to do just that. And then uh, over, over the years, it has turned into primarily a video channel, because it turns out video is a much easier way to uh, explain mechanical systems than photographs and text.
0: Yeah, quite. Yeah.
3: So it's gotten larger than I ever expected. I have a uh, little over 900,000 YouTube subscribers at this point. Wow. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I did not anticipate that when I started it. But I publish a video every single day, and so of course that requires spending a substantial amount of time filming. Yeah. And I've developed relationships with both commercial companies, primarily auction house companies, and then also uh, private collectors and museums, which is I think most relevant here uh, today.
0: Yes, that's right. So I think of you as a YouTube historian and researcher. Would you say that's an accurate description?
3: I feel a little awkward calling myself a researcher because what I do at at the volume of of video content that I produce, I do very little. I do basically no original research. Mm. Um, I have an extensive library that I work from. I would love to do more archival research, but it would require a a change in my fundamental format. Mm, Uh, And there are people out there, who do a much, much more thorough job of digging into the really deep history behind uh, different guns. But I don't think it's too unhumble to say that I <laughs> I do put out more actual factual historical content than uh, most people in this sort of area.
0: I've seen your videos shot at Leeds Royal Armouries here in the UK. What other collaborations have you done with museums out there?
3: Uh, the other museums that I've worked with are uh, the Dutch Military Museum. Mm. Uh, I've done a little bit of work with the Danish Army Museum in Copenhagen, mm-hmm. the Firearms Museum here in the U.S. Also, I've done a little bit with the Rock Island Arsenal Museum uh, here in the U.S. I was going to say museums can kind of be more difficult for me to work with. So mm-hmm. I, I have really worked with more private collectors than I have museums. And I'm sure that's something that we'll get into here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So out of curiosity, how do you get in touch with the private collectors?
3: Almost all word of mouth. Uh, mm-hmm. It's usually people who see my videos mm-hmm. and often it's firsthand. I find private collectors often have, they have an easier decision making process. It's one person who just has to decide that this sounds (laughs) like an interesting thing to do. And presto, it's authorized and it happens. Organizations can be a lot more bureaucratic and difficult to work with.
0: Yeah, that's a good point.
3: Yeah, when I do museums, I have to plan substantially in advance.
0: So how have you reached out to these museums that you have worked with? And who did you deal with when you were there?
3: Uh, it really depends on the individual circumstances. A couple, let's see, with the Cody Museum, mm-hmm. um, actually, <laughs> I got in touch with the curator directly over Facebook. We had some mutual uh, mutual friends, oh. and and <laughs> she, she maintains a very active presence on Facebook mm-hmm. and is very easy to get a hold of. And because the Cody Museum is private, that simplifies things a bit. Mm. With most of the other museums uh, internationally, what I've ended up doing is kind of putting out a request among my friends or among my fans for Mm -hmm. does anyone have a contact at this museum Ah. and so usually, usually that'll end up in some sort of pr or media department and ones that have been most successful are ones where either either someone in pr or media is a fan of the channel
0: yeah
3: and and they take they kind of take it upon themselves to to push for this to happen within the organization Ah. Uh, or ones where I can actually make a personal connection to the curator. If I can get to talk to the curator and and develop a a personal friendship, that, um, for obvious reasons, that really smooths the process of being able to film there.
0: Yeah, quite. When you were actually on site and finally made it to these museums, who did you feel like you were dealing with? Was it primarily the maybe initial contact or the curators or other people behind the scenes?
3: It's most mo- mostly the curators, but it's it's generally a, a complete surprise to me walking into a, a museum the first time to do something like this. Uh, I have no idea who I'm going to be talking to, mm-hmm. what their position is. Mm-hmm. Often, you know, even in email correspondence beforehand, it can be a little bit difficult to ascertain what is a person's actual role based on their their title yeah. or their communications. Yeah. So. It, it, you really just have to play it by ear and be flexible. Mm.
0: When you have visited these places, uh, were you shown how things were stored or given any handling instructions? Or were you kind of left in a room with some guns and then, <laughs> and, and, you know, how about it?
3: <laughs> it's been a bit of both, but museums generally have pretty strict regulations on supervision. Mm. They're, they don't want to leave weird strangers alone with their artifacts, <laughs> yeah. which I completely understand. So usually, in fact, I think pretty much always I have at least one handler there with me, mm. uh, just keeping an eye on what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And how how smoothly the visit goes often depends on uh, how familiar that handler is with firearms. Yeah, uh, sure. One thing that I do in particular is take stuff apart. Yeah, And so there's always a, pro- a feeling out process of how comfortable is the organization or the individual with disassembly of the guns? If they are guns that those people are familiar with, Mm -hmm. that makes a difference. If, if those people are, are gun people themselves, particularly in the United States, for obvious reasons. If, you know, whoever's working with me, if they've got their own collection and they are, you know, avid shooters themselves, they're typically much more comfortable with guns being taken apart because they understand how that works and that, you know, this isn't like trying to disassemble the spine of an ancient manuscript. Yeah. Guns are meant to be disassembled and they're designed so that they can come apart and go back together yeah. as long as you exercise due care In the process, nothing's going to break. Museums always require gloves as well, Mm. which is kind of private collectors virtually never have any interest in using gloves. The auction companies never use gloves. Yeah, by the way, museums that stock gloves never stock ones that actually fit.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is also a problem. (laughs) Did you feel that you've had positive experiences at these institutions as a general rule?
3: Yes, absolutely. In fact, all of them I, I've never really had a bad experience at a museum mm. the, the worst thing that has ever happened to me is not having as much time as I would like yeah but beyond that I've, I've generally found museum staff to be uh, very friendly very uh, outgoing and willing to help with what I'm doing and when there are times when they don't want to disassemble something it's not outrageous it's understandable. Mm. And there are certainly guns that I, on my own, look at and opt not to disassemble, especially something that's in really completely pristine condition. I don't want to be the guy that puts the first scratch on it somewhere. Mm. And yeah. so I will, and not just in museums, but in other collections as well.
0: Yeah, I'll, sure. I'll just let
3: it be as it is.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Using common sense at all times, basically. It goes a long way. How could your experiences have been made better, do you think? What could have been improved?
3: By far the biggest... Uh, obstacle I have working with museums is mm. finding out what they have. In general, I I regard anything that's actually displayed in the museum as out of my purview. The problem then is what I will typically do is I'll contact a museum and, and let's say it goes great. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. We'll have you, you know, you can come out for like three days all day. We've got a room that's good for filming. It's quiet. It's got good light. What do you want to film? Mm. And I kind of have to answer, well, what do you have? Because if I haven't been there before.
0: How would you know? Yeah.
3: I have no idea. And I have found most museums have an extremely poor catalog system, or at least an extremely poor one that's available for them to send to the public. There are catalogs out there where like a third of the catalog will have some pictures, which Mm. is great. But then two thirds of the catalog will have items that are, you know, item one, two, three, four, experimental grenade launcher. And so what, what I find is that the best way to actually do a museum visit is to go twice, If I can come up with a couple items that I know that they have and arrange just a one-day visit and say, well, you've got this gun and that gun, and I'd like to film those two, show up for one day, do those two guns, and then use that opportunity to also get a a tour of what's in the reserve collection, and then I can take notes on my own of, ah, well— the Canadian War Museum has this, 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 and this, and that's what I'd like to come back and do. And then I can schedule a second trip six months later or a year later and and actually know what I'm coming to look at.
0: Yeah, no, that that's a good point. There is a problem that a lot of museums suffer from, that they don't have particularly good databases and even their own records might not be super duper up to scratch, uh, which is a bit tragic, but we're working on it.
3: And I don't want to sound like I'm coming down negative on museums, but the Mm -hmm. other issue is curators often really don't know anything about the collections. Mm. This is probably exacerbated by the fact that I tend to specialize in really obscure stuff. With a private collector, I can usually depend on the collector to know something about the history of of each item, because since it's their personal property, they have a vested interest in learning about it. And the people who are contacting me are typically collectors who are curious, want to know more about the guns that they have and where they came from. Museums tend to have, you know, they probably had some guy like that at some point.
0: Yes.
3: (laughs) Uh, As new staff comes and goes, especially in larger institutions, there are a lot of people who are there because it's a job and they do their job great. They keep the guns in good order. You know, things don't get stolen things don't degrade, but they're not adding to the museum's archive of information and understanding of the collection.
0: Yeah. See, arguably, I think that that's kind of where this sort of exchange is so important, because whilst obviously it's a huge hurdle for you to not have the expertise on hand, on the other hand, it might also be a really wonderful opportunity for the museum to receive more information.
3: No, I don't consider a visit, whether it's a private collector or a museum, I don't consider it completely successful unless whoever runs the collection or owns the collection has learned something in the process as well. That's what gives them a motivation to have me come back.
0: Oh, that's a great attitude. I love that. That's fantastic. How do you think museums can better facilitate the kind of work that you and other historians out there do, do you think?
3: In large part, I think it would be by being more public about what they have. That and having a a clear channel of communication, like how do you find the person who can authorize something like this? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of museums are very Very touchy about having anyone from the outside come in for anything other than whatever the standard uh, experience of the the public side of the museum
0: is. Yeah,
3: trying to figure out what what is the what kind of organization is there? What's what are the circumstances for coming in as a private individual to see things that are in the reserve and actually touch them, take them apart, do research in the museum? Mm. These things that there are people who have figured it out and they become very you know intimately acquainted and familiar with the museum. But for someone on the outside trying to to do that for the first time, it can be very difficult to figure out who do I talk to? Like, what records do you even have, especially if we're talking archival records, you know, written records? Uh, How do I know if I need to come in here and research if I need to visit your museum for whatever research project I'm working on? If I can't tell what you I can't figure out what you have, it's kind of a catch 22.
0: Yeah. Okay, so probably communicate better with what you've got and communicate better yeah. once you've established contact with who you're talking to and who you need to talk to and also clear contacts on your website will be
3: super yeah you know a, a section of four researchers something along those lines yeah you know, give, a, give us a place to start at least
0: yes that will be very good wouldn't it
3: it would be nice if there was some some the beginning of some path just like one signpost somewhere to to get you started to be able to to actually use the museum for research.
0: Well, Ian, thank you so much for talking to The C-Word today. Thank you. Oh,
3: i sure it was a lot of fun.
0: If you're enjoying The C-Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. Well, it's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the c and join our bunch of absolute champions. Thanks for listening. We're the C-word, you've been listening to Vicky Singleton, Chloe Rumsey, and me, Jen Mathiasen join us next time for an episode about natural history in the meantime check out our website at theseawood.show tweet us at podcast, or simply email us on theseawoodpodcast at gmo.com the intro and outro music is spring by Didi music used under creative commons attribution license additional music and sound effects by calvin robertson this has been a wooden dice production